turn, please, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Our sermon text this morning, again, is Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. I'll read those verses, and then I'll pray for us once more. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. And when they, speaking of Jesus, Peter, James, and John, came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, well, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Please join me once more in prayer. God, in this time, we ask you to deal graciously with us for the sake of your son, Jesus, in whom we enjoy adoption as your children. God, would you send your Holy Spirit who inspired these words to help me to preach them clearly and faithfully? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see the glory of Jesus in these verses and the faith to which you call us? Lord, would you give us faith? We believe, help our unbelief this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I've studied our sermon text this past week, I have come to believe uh, that this passage is in the Bible to teach us about faith. I hope to show that to you as we walk through the text together. Four points in our sermon outline this morning. First, Mark's 
picture of faith. Second, our problems with faith. A third, the power of faith. A fourth, and finally, prayer and faith. Mark's picture of faith, our problems with faith, the power of faith and prayer and faith. First point this morning is Mark's picture of faith. What is faith? What is it like? What does it do? Well, in Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 14 and 15, as Mark is summarizing for us the message of Jesus, we learn that Jesus calls all people to believe or to have faith in the gospel. We understand that that means that Jesus calls us to reckon as true and reliable what he says to us. But that doesn't quite answer all of our questions about what faith is. As we've studied the Gospel of Mark together, what we've seen is that Mark has given to us a robust portrait of what faith is through his miracle stories. Mark has shown us what faith is, what it does, what it looks like through the miracle stories he's recorded. Remember the story of the paralyzed man back in Mark chapter 2. Jesus is preaching the word to a packed house. Four men bring a paralyzed friend to Jesus for healing. It's too crowded. There's no access. But these men are determined to get to Jesus. So they climb up on someone else's roof. They dig a hole through it. And they lower their buddy into the middle of the crowd so that Jesus can do for them what they can't. And as the sunlight breaks through this ceiling and Jesus sees this man being brought to him for help, Mark says that Jesus saw their faith. What did Jesus see there? Well, Jesus saw four men desperate for him to do for them what they couldn't do for themselves. Jesus saw in these men a trust that he was willing and able to help them. Jesus saw confident and even needy dependence on himself. That's not a bad definition of faith, according to Mark. Faith is confident dependence on Jesus. Uh, The next mention of faith after that of the paralyzed man in Mark's gospel is in Mark chapter 4, verse 40. Uh, The disciples are on a nighttime boat trip, and they encounter the biggest storm of their lives. Uh, They think they're going to die. They are terrified. So they wake Jesus with the words, teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? Jesus stills the storm with a word, And then he says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? In other words, have you still no confident dependence on me? What's the next example of faith in Mark's gospel? From Mark chapter 5, Mark introduces us to a woman who is suffering from a terrible bleeding problem for 12 years. And she hears that Jesus is coming by. What does this woman say to herself? She says, I know that if I touch only the edge of his garment, I will be made well. She touches Jesus' garment. She is made well. And Jesus tells her daughter, your faith 
Your confident dependence on me has made you well. The picture of faith that Mark has given to us in his gospel is that faith is confident and even needy dependence on Jesus. There's much more we could say about faith, but that is the heart of the matter. And Christian, let me remind you this morning, this is what God wants from you. God wants your faith. He wants your trust. God wants you to go through life confidently relying and depending on Him. When you're struggling, when you're guilty, when you have needs, when as the psalmist that we read earlier, we have sorrow in our hearts all the day. God's desire is that our hearts would say with the psalmist, I have trusted in your steadfast love. I don't know what's next. I don't know why all of this is happening, but I am depending. I am leaning, relying, banking on Jesus, on his wisdom and goodness and power. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone whose faith is in Jesus, not just for difficult life situations, but for matters of eternal importance. A Christian is someone who is relying on Jesus to reconcile him to God. A Christian is someone who is confidently depending on Jesus, on his death to pay for our sins, on his resurrection to give us new life. A Christian is someone who is looking to Jesus for life and joy and peace and forgiveness. That's what Mark has been calling us to do throughout his gospel, especially as he's recorded these miracle stories. The miracles of Jesus, they are not merely allegories. They are real historical events that really happened with eyewitnesses. They are also living pictures of saving faith in Jesus like the blind who come to Jesus for sight, like the sick who come to Jesus for healing. Mark calls us to come to Jesus and to lean on Him for all that we need in this life and eternity. That is the picture of faith that Mark has given to us. It is confident dependence on Jesus. Well, I begin with what we've seen so far in Mark's gospel because our text this morning really doesn't open first with a picture of faith as much as a picture of our problems with faith, uh, the problems we tend to encounter as we pursue faith. That's our second point this morning, our problems with faith. Remember last week we saw that in the passage immediately prior to this one, Jesus had taken Peter and James and John up a high mountain to witness his transfiguration. Well, as our passage this morning opens, Jesus, Peter, James, and John have just journeyed down the mountain. And in verse 14, we read that as they finish their descent, they're met by three groups at the foot of the mountain. First, there's Jesus' other disciples, the other nine. A second, Mark said that there is a great crowd around these disciples. And third, he says there's a bunch of scribes arguing with the disciples. 
In those days, a scribe was a sort of cross between a religious teacher and a lawyer. Mark mentions the scribes about 20 times in his gospel, and every single time we've encountered the scribes so far in Mark, they've been bad news. The scribes almost always seem to be opposing and rejecting Jesus. So when we read here that the scribes and the disciples are arguing with a crowd sort of watching the fight, it seems safe to infer that what the disciples and the scribes are arguing about is the legitimacy of Jesus and his ministry. Something has called that into question in the scribes' mind. Well, as Jesus arrives and this confused mass of people catches sight of him coming down the mountain, Mark says all the crowd is greatly amazed. It's Jesus. So they run up to him and they greet him. In verse 16, Mark, Jesus uh, says, what's, what's everyone arguing about? And in verses 17 and 18, we read this. Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able So it seems like these hostile scribes had seized on the disciples' failure to cast this demon out as an excuse to argue with them about the legitimacy of Jesus. But what does Jesus make of this scene? What does Jesus see going on in this event and the ensuing argument? Look there in verse 19. Verse 19 says, and he answered them, not just the man who spoke to him, but them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Jesus comes down the mountain and sees in this moment a faithless or unbelieving generation. Commentators have asked, what specifically is Jesus talking about? Where specifically is the unbelief that he's speaking about? It seems to me that we see at least three different examples of unbelief in this moment. First, there's the unbelief of the scribes. Remember, at the beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus arrives on the scene announcing that he is bringing the kingdom of God. But ever since Mark chapter 3, the scribes have decided, seemingly in unison, to reject Jesus' claim to be God's king because his agenda threatens their power and their prominence as religious leaders. They can't deny that Jesus is doing public, amazing miracles, but they decide to ascribe those miracles to the power of Satan. They don't want to depend on Jesus' Uh, bringing of God's kingdom on God's saving power in action through Jesus, because if they depend on Jesus, then really they have to submit to his agenda. If they depend on Jesus, they might lose the honor and provenance that they've gained for themselves as scribes. So in spite of Jesus' miracles, the, the scribes decide not to believe in him because he threatens what they want. Friends, do we see any of this in ourselves? A a refusal to trust Jesus, because trusting Jesus 
would commit us to an agenda that we don't actually want. What Jesus wants for us and from us is different than what we want to do. And so we don't trust him because doing so would mean submitting to his call on our lives. In the scribes, we see the problem of rebellion as an obstacle to faith. The second instance of unbelief in this passage is the unbelief of the crowd. We've seen before that the crowd in Mark tends to be sort of vaguely pro-Jesus. They've gathered to wait for him at the foot of the mountain. They're excited when he comes down. But from Mark's narrative, it's very clear that for all their enthusiasm about the, the free healings and the new teaching and the multiplied bread, right, the crowd, this generation, as Jesus calls them, they failed to understand the meaning of Jesus' ministry. And when Jesus asks back in chapter 8, who do people say that I am? The disciples report answers that reflect a widespread lack of understanding about who Jesus is. They say, well, some people are saying that you're John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Some people are saying that you're Elijah. Some people are saying uh, that you're one of the prophets. None of the crowd seems to understand that he is the Christ, that he's the son of the living God. And Mark, Mark makes very clear to us, it's not because the crowd has an intelligence problem. Mark shows us again and again that the crowd has a hardness of heart problem. Mark says that they have a listening problem. Remember in the parable of the sower back in chapter 4, Jesus teaches that failure to listen to him is not an innocent thing. The crowd's unbelief stems from the problem of misunderstanding. And their misunderstanding comes from the fact that they haven't really listened to Jesus. Friends, we need to beware mistaking a sort of a a shallow willingness to go along with the Jesus crowd for true understanding uh, and true faith. Those are not the same thing. Don't don't assume that you're fine just because you're in the Jesus crowd. It's possible we've never listened to what Jesus himself says and means about himself, about us, about our lives. We see a lack of faith in the scribes who've rebelled against Jesus, a lack of faith in the crowd who doesn't understand Jesus. Third, we see a lack of faith even in the disciples. We saw back in Mark chapter 6 that Jesus had given the disciples authority over the demons to cast them out. But in verse 18, we find the disciples were unable to cast out this demon. It seems like they were up against some sort of especially hardy demon in this case. A different kind. And it's very clear from the disciples' question down in verse 28, they had expected to be able to exercise this demon. They say, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus' answer there in verse 29 is that this kind cannot be driven out except by prayer. We'll say more about that later, God willing, but Jesus seems to be doing more than just explaining obscure laws that govern demon activity. Jesus seems to be indicating that the disciples failed to pray in this instance. We said that faith is confident dependence on Jesus. Well, it seems that the disciples' prior success in casting out demons had left them confident, but really not that dependent on Jesus. It seems, to th- it seems that the disciples had come to think that they had some sort of power resident in themselves themselves. 
And when the going got tough, they didn't, they didn't humble themselves in earnest prayer to Jesus for help, right? Rather than confidently depend on Jesus. It seems like the disciples have become self-reliant. Friends, do we see any of this in ourselves? Do, do we see in ourselves a presumptuous confidence that we got this right? in, instead of a needy dependence on Jesus? When we start to realize, hey, maybe I don't got this, right? do we see panic and anxiety rather than a confident reliance on Jesus? There's one more, one fourth problem we commonly have with faith in this passage, maybe the hardest problem of all, and that is the problem of suffering. The problem of suffering. Three times in this passage, Mark describes the intense and prolonged suffering of this poor father and his son in this passage. There in verses 17 and 18, which I read a moment ago, we learn the Spirit has made the boy mute. It grabs him, it throws him to the ground, it makes him foam at the mouth and grind his teeth. Matthew actually describes this boy's condition as epilepsy. Mark makes it very clear, and Matthew affirms that this is epilepsy in this case being caused by a demon. And then again in verse 20, after the boy is brought to Jesus, these sufferings start to play out before our very eyes. The demon sees Jesus and it grabs the boy, it throws him on the ground, and he starts rolling and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus says, how long has this been happening? We can barely stand to read about this appearance and this father asks Jesus, how, how long, I'm sorry, Jesus asks the father, how long has this been happening? And our hearts break as the father says, this has been going on since childhood. And he breaks into another description of how terribly this child has suffered. Right? The demon has thrown him into the fire, into the water to drown him. Right? You can sense the anguish there in verse 22 as this man who has suffered says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. This man does have faith in Jesus. Right? He's, he's brought his son to Jesus because he's depending on Jesus to heal him. But can you see that the relentless, soul-grinding reality of suffering has left this man's faith weak? The years of heartbreak have taken their toll. And finally, when it seems like relief is in sight, I've made it to Jesus' disciples. They've been casting out demons all around Israel. For some reason, unlike in every other case when the disciples succeed, it doesn't work. Again, his hopes are dashed. So by the time Jesus makes it down the mountain, this man's faith is hanging on by a thread. He says to Jesus, Jesus, if you can, if you can do anything, please, please help us. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is so realistic about the strain that prolonged suffering puts on our faith. Friend, if you resonate I know that at times I have most certainly resonated with this father. If you resonate with him, friend, hear what God's word says to you in this text. If you can do anything, 
That's exactly what Jesus puts his finger on in his response. In response to this man's doubt, Jesus speaks to this man about the power of faith. That's our third point this morning, the power of faith. Look there in verse 23. We read there, and Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Now, in our day, it's very important first to clarify what Jesus does not mean. Jesus is not teaching that faith is a magical power that we can use to manipulate God into doing things that he hasn't indicated that he would do. Right? You know that you can turn on the television and you can find people claiming to speak in the name of Jesus that if you psych yourself into a state of sufficient believing, you can have whatever you want. See, it looked for me. I got a jet by fleecing people. Because God wants you to be totally rich and healthy all the time, they say. Saints, that's ridiculous. No one had more faith than the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, Father, if it is possible, remove this cup from me. But what did his faith look like? It looked like him saying, yet nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is not teaching here that faith is inherently powerful. He's teaching that faith is dependence on an all-powerful Jesus. Faith is not inherently powerful, but it passes the ball to an all-powerful Savior. Faith hitches your wagon to the Almighty God and His power. So, although we need to not misunderstand what Jesus means, Jesus' words here are not in the Bible to make us really cautious, right? Jesus doesn't say, hey, don't, don't be too optimistic when you come to God in prayer, right? You need to regulate your expectations here. Jesus is trying to stoke and stir up the fire of our faith by talking to us about the unlimited power of the God on whom faith depends, Right. However much we may have suffered, however bleak our circumstances, however weak and weary and discouraged we might be, God's power to work all things together for the good of His people is unlimited. All things are possible for Him. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen says it like this, it says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Brothers and sisters, we need to hear this. Whatever you're facing, whatever relational breakdown, whatever need, whatever health crisis, whatever sin struggle, whatever frustration, whatever is going on in your life, Nothing is too hard for the God on whom we depend by faith. If things are not yet what we want them to be, we can know, we can trust, we can have faith that God will yet work them for our eternal good by His almighty power. And friends, listen. Here is the wonderful news of our passage this morning. Weak faith 
in a powerful Jesus wins the day. Weak, wavering, doubt-stricken faith in an almighty Jesus wins. Imagine for a moment that you're having serious trouble with your car. And so you drop your car off with the mechanic for a week. And suppose that after you've left your beloved vehicle with the mechanic, you struggle deeply with doubts about the mechanic's competence to fix your car. You lay awake at night with weak and quavering faith. Will he fix it? Can he fix it? Will he make it worse? What if my car never runs again? Day and night you struggle all week until at the end of the week, you head to the mechanic, you pick up your car, and you find that he has completely fixed everything wrong with your car. And you say, that's amazing. How could he have done that while my faith was so weak? And the answer is that the quality of your faith does not affect the mechanic's ability to fix your car. It's not the quality of your faith. It's the object of your faith. The mechanic himself fixes the car, not the quality of your faith in him. Wavering faith in a competent mechanic equals fixed car. Friends, in the same way, weak, wavering faith in a mighty Jesus delivers the goods. Jesus says in verse 23, all things are possible for one who believes. Verse 24 says, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Brothers and sisters, what a prayer to memorize and use. I believe, Lord Jesus, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, but in my heart, I see an aversion to doing the things you want me to do. Help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, but I see so much foolishness and pride. Help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, but I am so beaten down by this suffering. I feel like I can't hold on any longer. Help my unbelief. Friend, that kind of faith moves Jesus into action. In response to the Father's faith, Jesus rebukes the demon. He says, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And notice how Mark describes the conclusion of this drama. Look there in verse 26. It says, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, the demon came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. Why would Mark include that detail? Well, friends, three times in Mark's gospel, someone is lying down, either dead or almost dead. And three times, Mark uses almost exactly the same words to record that Jesus does exactly the same thing. Mark chapter 1, we read of Peter's sick mother-in-law. She's lying ill with a fever. And we read that Jesus came, took her by the hand, and raised her up. And the fever left her. In Mark chapter 5, we read that as Jairus' daughter is lying dead in his house, we read that taking her by the hand, Jesus said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, 
arise. Here in chapter 9, after the demon leaves the boy and he's lying on the ground like a corpse, people are saying, he looks dead. We read that Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. Friends, listen, this is why you can depend on Jesus. Because even in the face of death, Jesus has the power to take you by the hand and raise you up to eternal life. What a mighty Savior. Weak, wavering faith in this Jesus is unimaginably powerful. We've seen Mark's picture of faith, the problems we have with faith, the power of faith. Our fourth and final point this morning is prayer and faith. Prayer and faith. What's going on here in these last two verses, verses 28 and 29? After the commotion of the exorcism, Jesus and his disciples enter whatever house they're staying in. Uh, And the disciples ask Jesus, Jesus, why couldn't we cast that demon out? And Jesus tells them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. We might be tempted to see that as sort of of a random piece of demon trivia, almost like a strange animal fact. Did you know that otters, when they sleep on their back in the water, they, they sleep holding hands so they don't drift apart? Also, did you know that some demons can't come out except by prayer? Right. If that's all that we see here, I think we've missed the point. Mark intends for us to see these words as a conclusion to a Bible story about faith. So interesting to compare what Jesus says here in Mark with what Matthew records. Listen to how Matthew ends the exact same story in Matthew chapter 17. And Matthew writes this, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. In Matthew, Jesus says, You didn't have faith. In Mark, Jesus says, you didn't pray. Now, clearly, both are true. Jesus said both things. But can you see that Jesus is really saying the same thing two different ways? Jesus is saying, prayer is what faith would have looked like here. Right? That makes sense, doesn't it? If, if faith is confident dependence on Jesus... Uh, then where and when and how do we put dependence on Jesus into practice? In prayer. Right, to reference the illustration from a moment ago, prayer is when we take the car to the mechanic. A prayer is how we pass the ball to Jesus. It's when we say, hey Jesus, I got this thing and I need your help. Your power, your wisdom, your resources, would you help me? Friends, prayer is what faith does. Prayer is how God's children depend on him. So brothers and sisters, do you have needs? Do you have anxieties? 
Do you have struggles? Are you aware that the brothers and sisters in your church have needs and anxieties and struggles? Brothers and sisters, take them to the Lord in prayer. Saints, do you want to grow? Is your faith weak and wavering? Do you long to trust God more? Do you need help with your unbelief? Brothers and sisters, take it to the Lord in prayer. Saints, are there good works and gospel priorities that God has put on your heart? Are there people that you long to see saved? Saints, take it to the Lord in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Do our friends despise, forsake us? Brothers and sisters, take it to the Lord in prayer. Saints, this is why we have prayer meetings on Sundays at 9 a.m. in the conference room. This is why we have prayer meetings at 5 p.m. on the second and fourth Sundays of the month when there's not a members meeting. This is why we have prayer meetings on Zoom at 6.30 p.m. on Wednesdays. It's not because we're spiritual fitness gurus who are just longing for one more workout. It's because we are so needy. It's because all the things that we want to see happen in our lives and in the life of the church, only God can bring them to pass. I was not too long ago at a minister's fellowship, and we had just read a book about prayer. And there was a quote in this book, really just you know, making ministers feel terrible for not praying enough. And one of the older, wiser ministers in the group said, you know, you know there, there, there's a place for that, but that actually doesn't make me want to pray for more than about a week. Right? Shame is not ultimately a great foundation for our obedience to Jesus. And another minister piped up and said, yeah, you know, it seems like the heart of the matter is if we think that we can accomplish the things that we want to see happen, probably won't pray very much. But if we know that only God can cause to happen the things that we want to see in our lives, in the lives of God's people, we'll pray. Let me close with this. The book of Revelation chapter 5 records a glorious scene of worship in heaven. There are four living creatures who seem to represent all of creation there are 24 elders who seem to represent all of God's people. And as they're worshiping the God who sits on the throne and the Lamb, in chapter 5 we're told that at one point these four living creatures and the, these elders, they're holding golden bowls full of incense. The worship in heaven, there's these golden bowls full of incense that are part of that worship that's so pleasing to God. And Revelation chapter 5 says, those bowls full of incense, those are the prayers of the saints. Saints, what a wonderful God we have. When we bring our neediness to Him, when we say, God, I don't got it, and I really need your help. We don't got it, and we really need your help. That's precious worship to Him.
That's incense before him. Our Father delights to hear that from us. He delights to be our help, to answer us according to his perfect will and his great love. Saints, let's pray now. Please join me in prayer. God, we thank you for this passage that helps our unbelief. Lord, we confess our faith is often so weak. Thank you that weak faith in a mighty Jesus triumphs. Jesus, thank you for your grace and kindness to us as we waver. Lord, we pray that more and more you would make us a people who are characterized by faith, by confident dependence on you for eternal salvation, for forgiveness of sins, for empowerment in ministry and in obedience, and for all of our needs in this life. Lord, would you produce this in us by your spirit, we pray. Through Jesus Christ, amen.